Hello and welcome to another episode of Week Notes, the podcast from Instill. This is the final in our second series of episodes. This one was recorded back at the start of April and features Daniel, Garth and Richard. When we recorded there was hope of some loosening of Covid restrictions, so we continue our exploration of remote working and the prospect of a return to the office. After that we talk about Estimate, Instill's planning poker app, before having a longer discussion about the general approach to estimation in software development. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. How are you all? Not so bad. Thursday. So Thursdays are always good. Thursday off tomorrow. So it's Friday. Yay. I'm off tomorrow. So it's Friday. What are you doing tomorrow, Daniel? Absolutely nothing. Just a, another lockdown holiday. Another lockdown day off of not doing anything at all. Walk, movie or eat. That's, that's the three things you're legally allowed to do at the minute. And that's kind of what my days off are surrounded by. Yeah. I'm just desperate for a nice meal in a good restaurant. I don't know when that's going to happen, though. It's a year since lockdown, and this time last year, Garth and I had done our first fully remote delivery, panicking about it a little bit, but it went okay, and now it's entirely normal. And I think almost there's a risk that it's so normal that we end up falling into bad habits and we're not taking advantage of the technology or the ability to do interesting things with it. We get used to things. I'm entirely used to let's call it distributed working at this point and we'd be happy to continue with that but I'm a bit fed up with not being able to go anywhere I'd like to be able to go and work in a coffee shop for a morning so I'm wondering whether you three have reflected on remote working and what you've learned in the last year it's strange now that there's hardly a time when we are not on zoom because my wife being a counselor she has an awful lot of meetings in the evening so uh, uh, i can be teaching from nine to five and then i'll vacate the home office and she'll come in and start so uh, i think there was one day last week when there were 16 hours of zoom meetings going on and then the, the kids have their own zoom meetings for gaming and all that kind of stuff as well it's amazing how we've transitioned to uh, a fully remote culture over the space of a year say Ryan you've always been a fanboy of remote distributed working I've been practically working in a distributed fashion since 2010 I was in a small satellite office in most of my jobs or I was working entirely remotely so I've for a long time had that I'm not in the main office so therefore I'm going to miss out on news and stuff so I am a fan of it I like the flexibility but I dislike the lack of knowledge that you get whenever you're not seeing people every day. Distributed working used to mean you could take the laptop down to the coffee shop and order a bit of breakfast and then do some work and then order a bit of brunch and do a bit more work. And then if you're me, order a bit of lunch and then do some more work and meet local people that you know and that there was a social aspect of it that's gone now. Yeah, I think that's why it's so hard at the moment is because we're trying to do two things at once. But Richard, you're not a fan of distributed working? Well, obviously I do like working in the house. And I used to do it before the pandemic because it means I don't have to travel two hours a day to get to and from work. But at the same time, I'm not a fan of 100% remote working. I wouldn't be looking to take a job where it was remote. I feel that some connectivity and some interactions are lost just through video calls. You know, when you can't see people out of the corner of your eye, you can't just call over and chat with someone. I think there is tangential benefits to all that and that is lost from being at home no matter what sort of remote tool you have you're not going to replicate that discord or some other form of video conferencing room where people could have these happenings this is not the same it's never going to be the same 
Yeah, I think there is something to be said for everybody being in the same boat, though, because I remember before whenever you had a team that, you know, it was half remote and half in the office and the people who were remote were start getting a little bit paranoid. Do people really believe I'm working hard enough from home or are the people in the office getting jealous? Are they making social links and business contacts that I'm not? And does that mean I'll be the, the first out the door if the business takes a dive or whatever? At least everybody's on the same level. There is that, that you're all at home, you're all in the same boat. I don't think the boat is as good as when you spend some time at least together in the same space. Well, we never necessarily did five days a week in the office. It's not to say we need to return to office-based, you know, the same pattern. But I think something needs to happen. I think that I do feel that over the past year, doing it solely remotely, things have been lost. Some people have said that, and some people who are new to the company as well, say, well, there's just no culture in this company and things. I don't necessarily think that's true, but I think that if you're only experiencing something as remotely, then it's going to be a different experience to being in the same space with people where things are happening around you and you're seeing stuff. When you're working at home, you're working with the same group of people probably on the same project. So you're not really seeing what other people are doing in their little corners of the rooms and you're not picking up any ideas. And I think that's all kind of lost. Agree. I've been involved in some groups that have continued via Google Meet during pandemic. You can engage at a certain level in a conversation like this with a group of people, your team or your friends or your colleagues. But there's a there's a level of intimacy that you just don't reach. In one respect, we're at work here, so it's not about that. But at the same time, we need to care for each other. You need to be interested in other people. You need to collaborate and share knowledge. And you're not going to get to the next level of relationship that allows you to be really productive together, I think, unless you've got time together. Yeah, no, I'd, I, I would agree. Yeah. That's something I learned in the first training company I worked for because we were all being sent to you know, all kinds of different places. You learned that whenever you were in the same part of, let's say, Dublin or whatever, party time. You know, if three or more of you were in Dublin in any particular week, you moved heaven and earth to get everybody into a restaurant and have a good meal. And as you say, try and build the social network and work out if somebody needed a bit of support or whatever. And it was those face-to-face interactions that were the things that you remember and where all the, the good interactions happened. Since I started working, I've met one person from the shoulders down, and it was Richard, and he handed me an iPad and left. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it's real. I mean, it's strange. I've spoke to Niall every morning at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. for at least 15 minutes, and mostly most days longer than that. Mm-hmm. I've never met him. It's just I only know his shoulders down. Shoulders up. It's, it's just <laughs> shoulders up, sorry. It's shoulders up. I've only ever seen him in a Google Meet Square. Yeah. I did interview you as well, though, Daniel. Yeah, well, I mean, during an interview, but since I was hired. <laughs> so we have been in the same space together for at least an hour. He is real. He does exist. That's good. <laughs> yeah. The rest of them don't have a clue. Yeah. I don't know who told you there's no culture, Richard, but I was just thinking about all of the different clubs. We've got groups who are obsessed about coffee. We've got groups who are obsessed about homemade pizza we've got groups who are obsessed about the right tracksuit bottoms to wear on all that sort of stuff have you found yourself a community of interest through slack or whatever yeah there's people who you know in those slack channels where it's like coffee club and games and all those ones that i've talked in and there's people who you you talk to people but we don't have meetings together you know if we're on the same social call we're on the same social call but 
I never have arranged something out of that. We had the coffee masterclass, but that was more like a presentation than a social thing. But it's weird. I organized a college tournament for charity at Christmas, and that was the first time I had spoke to people in a non we are working together aspect outside of the coffee calls and the Friday socials and stuff. And I got to speak to six or seven different people and that was great. But, you know, I really had to organize that for that to happen nearly. It was someone needs to organize something for me to talk to someone where I'm not asking them questions about iOS storyboards. Yeah. You know, it's strange. We had a kebab in the park at Christmas. Yes, the official Christmas training event was we all went and got a kebab and sat in the park and ate it and discussed why we were buying all the presents off Amazon and felt guilty over it. So yeah, that was a a spectacular experience. I really miss having those opportunities. We used to have fairly regular walks around the park in Moira whenever we were allowed to. At the time that was happening, it was like a couple weeks or a month into me working there. And I was like, I'll I'll get the next one. You know, that one's far away. It doesn't suit. I've got a meeting at 10 o'clock. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 I won't see anyone for seven months. So uh, Estimate, I have been asked to talk about the Estimate app. Somebody tried to give me a wad of cash under the table uh, virtually (laughs) in order to get me to promote. I couldn't tell you that was. The Estimate app uh, on the podcast. And so you're here, Daniel. Are you kind of the lead developer of the Estimate app? Is that how it's ended up? It's probably unfair to call me lead developer. I was just the intern who had some free time to finish it off after it was parked when we all got real projects to work on. So we can start with the background. So we all used to use this planning poker app in the office, which was then discontinued for quite some time. We talked about how we were going to build this awesome planning poker app. And then lo and behold, we had our summer induction for graduates and interns. And what we'd normally like to do is after they've been through uh, you know, some uh, internal training and you know, thought about how they want to write code and things like that, we like to try and give them something to do that um, brings them up to speed on the way we like to write code, the way we like to structure apps, you know, CI, CD, testing, all those good things. So and that's where, um, that's where Daniel and the boys arrived. Um, to build what is now called Estimate. Okay, so you arrived in August, Daniel, and you get some excellent training from the Instill training team. (laughs) World-class training, delivered in person or remotely. Indeed. And then you sit down and you're handed this app to develop. So how did you go about doing it? Did the team build the whole thing or did you get lots of input from the designated product owner, who I assume is Richard? Yeah, so it was kind of Richard, Matty, Kelvin, the the three that pointed us in the right direction. But I think there was just a template project put up and then they just said, go for it. It's all built in SwiftGI, which is, it's an experience. So we just got told, go for it. It was more to get us used to pull request, code review, merging, all that kind of stuff, as well as have this app built as a side product. It was quite a decent amount of time we put into it. Um, Towards the end, people did just start dropping off as they got plucked away to work on other projects. But yeah, it was to teach us the agile principles and get input from those more senior devs early. We knew how to write code, but it was how to write code as part of a team, as part of a larger project within Instill was the brief. 
So it ended up being a pretty good near finish product at the point where we had all got moved off. And then around Christmas, I was in downtime between two teams and was asked if I would like to finish it off. So I took it and uh, did a complete redesign, changed the color scheme, and then eventually got it through test flight onto the App Store, polished and knocked the final few bugs out. So now it's live in the App Store and and it's being used? I use it in my team. I think some other teams that still use it. It's just rated five stars on the App Store. Three three reviews, but it is rated five stars. None of the reviews are from the devs, I promise. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that this was the first your first experience of Swift as well, or had you had you some Swift experience yeah, this before? Is, yeah, for me, this is my first. I think some of the other guys had done a little bit in uni with their final year projects, but I'm because yeah. I'm an intern. I'm I've only done two years. I haven't touched it yet. That's a really impressive step to start and to get an app built in essentially five weeks, starting from not having known the programming language you're using uh, to getting it finished. So that, that for me, that suggests that Swift is a good language to learn. It's okay. There, uh, There's some stuff that you just feel should be there. Now I've gone on day to day, I'm Xamarin native. So I'm working with quite a lot of iOS stuff and Apple have a very Californian approach to some stuff in that they're just like, eh, we'll get to fixing that text views after 14 years still don't have a placeholder why who knows just stuff like that that's really frustrating so swift gi being only a year old there's a lot of stuff i'm sure that's at the end of their whiteboard that they're gonna we'll get to that you know if you wait six months it'll be there but the, the whole estimation side of things is really interesting because having done agile courses for a long time, you can look back and say, look, we've learned so much about TDD and we're, we're further on and more mature or we've learned more about continuous integration or whatever it happens to be. But whenever you look at the whole process of estimation, we're still having the same arguments that people were having 20 years ago, if not 30 years ago. Well, I mean, obviously there are many, many ways that you can estimate stuff. I suppose in our line of business, which is mostly service-based work, we quite often get customers who are very keen to know what they're getting for their money. And so there's a bit of a fine balance between trying to ascertain enough to give them some sort of sizing and not be trapped in this waterfall cycle. That is the fine type of we always have to walk. So we still have to do some sort of uh, big upfront estimates where typically I reduce sizes. I might use numbers to represent those sizes, but at the end of the day, you're talking small, medium, large, extra large, ginormous. And then you just make up some imaginary numbers where you say, okay, if I'm going to say small, common sense and experience tells me that small story in this kind of scenario where I'm trying to do it up front, I'm going to say it's going to take a week. But then once you actually get into the cadence of delivering, quite clearly, easiest way to estimate is always to keep the scope small. If you're thinking about a sprint or two sprints, you can keep on top of that and you can be accountable for it. I think once you start to get into weeks and weeks and weeks and trying to roadmap things out, that's when it all gets easy and you're back into those sizes. If everything was certain and if you could give completely precise estimates, what would be the point of a human developer doing it? If you've got to the point where you can estimate things with real precision, then you should be writing a framework or you should be writing a code generator. Yeah, but it's the whole 
biased, right? So you try to estimate something and what most people only see is the stuff that's written down in front of you. So if somebody's written a nice simple user story with some, with some nice acceptance criteria, that tends to be all people see. They don't then tend to think, right, okay, so I need to consider how to secure that. I need to consider if that needs to be accessible. I need to consider how that's gonna perform. I need to consider data storage. Now, some of these things, obviously, you could build like tangentially as other stories and so on. It tends to be when you're developing stuff, you still have to give all of that some consideration. And then all, obviously all your unhappy paths and so on. You can develop in a couple of ways. You could turn that into 40 user stories, which would all be quite small. And then that's quite an easy thing to reason about. Then you maybe don't need to estimate them at all because they're all quite small. And you can just say, okay, well, it's pretty straightforward what this is. But then you spend so much of your time decomposing things. I tend to like user stories the way most people tend to like them, which is you provide a capability for uh, a user which has some value attached to it. If you try to decompose it down sometimes into maybe 20 user stories, maybe you start to lose the value behind that and you're really just creating a bunch of small tasks. There's an interesting question there about serverless and design in the cloud. Back in days of your, like five years ago, the idea was always that you would get the architecture right up front. And then once you'd done that, your estimates would become more precise because you'd be slotting into an existing architecture. So if you're working in serverless and you're working in the cloud, are you now discovering the architecture as you go? And therefore your, your estimates continue to be uncertain all the way through? In my eyes, I know you want to try and tackle a lot of the big problems up front um, and the unknowns so that hopefully you do establish. Quite clearly, you don't know all your requirements necessarily up front, but you have a good idea. You should be able to take off a lot of that stuff and then you should be able to establish your architecture. You've got to be doing something quite unusual if you can't establish some patterns in your app that are consistent um, that you're just adding to as you go along. So yeah, definitely if the error rate in your estimates is the same at the end of the project than it was at the beginning, then that would to me indicate something's going wrong or or else you're doing pure research in some shape or form. Because so. yeah, it's, it's like the whole bricklayer analogy. You know, from laying 100 bricks, I kind of have a rough idea how long it's going to take, but quite clearly software is nothing like that at all. Once you've added a, I don't know, a button to a field, a screen that does something in the back end, you know, the next time you come to do that in the same pattern, you should... It should be something comparable, so we should start to establish your estimates. All that said, do you know, I, I feel that the value that estimates give us is not necessarily about the numbers and the velocity. Yes, it does help you establish roughly how many things you might be able to do in a sprint. There's other ways of, of doing that, apart from putting numbers or sizes on stories, as we know, like where you break them all down to like what you feel is a similar size, or you count the numbers of stories, or you do these different things. But I think whenever you're doing all of those things, one of the things you, you probably do want to do with the team is that you do want to talk about the story from the perspective of what is involved here and get that common understanding so that A, you've got a shared understanding of how you're building, what you're building, and B, so you're as a team sharing knowledge between yourselves. You know, it does give you a way of decomposing things because somebody might have written a user story, they might think there's not much involved in it, and then like you actually discuss it and you realize it's a massive task, and then in which case it's five stories, instead of someone just taking it off a board and just starting working on it. So at some level, somebody needs to do that kind of work anyway. So whether you put numbers on things or not, somebody needs to break stuff up because if you don't break it up, you know, you're just back to the days of yore whenever people just took big tasks and worked on them for a month.
I think whenever you, you have a situation where somebody's really, really pushing you for an estimate, what's going on there is we're, we're trying to manage uncertainty, we're trying to manage fear, we're trying to put the responsibility for managing that uncertainty and fear onto anybody other than ourselves. It's always going to be a tough call between the project sponsor and the team that builds something for them. So be that whether the project sponsor is you're in within your business or outside of your business, People always still want to know, they still want to know what they're going to get when they hand you a budget to do something. I'm pretty sure I don't have all the right answers. At at the end of the day, I think there's a place, there's always going to be a place for some sort of estimation or if it's not an estimation, it's something equivalent. It's like, let's all agree on what this thing is and that it's actually something that can be achieved within a certain time frame. That's why some of the large companies had a separate research group, you know, which was distinct from the development teams. And the research group would be allocated a problem and they would come up with a proof of concept to show that something could be done technically. I don't actually want to do R&D. I don't. It's not my thing. No? No, it's not my thing. I'd rather actually be working on a real life problem. Yeah, but that, having that problem is, is an R&D thing, though. You know, so if you've got a predefined problem that you don't know how to solve, surely that is, by definition, research and development. You're developing the solution. Sure, I suppose it depends what, yeah, it depends what your R&D department looks like. If someone says R&D, I just picture people like with slides in the office and the little helicopter caps and messing around <laughs> all day and nothing's ever taken seriously. <laughs> but, Sounds like the install training thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a day in the training team is like a day in the farm. You know, every paycheck, fortune, every meal is a banquet, you know.